Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. It's Triple Threat Theater. We're back from Naya Music and Murder. Episode 76. I'm Joe Daxberger. I'm Ryan Miller, and I couldn't have said it better myself. Mm. Mills, tonight, 1962's The Phantom of the Opera, 1974's Phantom of the Paradise, and 1989's Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. (laughs) Yeah. Much to my chagrin, we're not just reviewing Phantoms for an hour and a half. (laughs) Right. Which... Anyone who listens to this show could have definitely expected that. <laughs> I could talk about that movie for another hour and a half, but nope, some completely different phantoms this time around. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this one was all you, baby. Yeah, I think that uh, the idea for this one probably came about because, you know, I uh, log all of the, I keep track of all the movies that I own on Blu-ray in a, an app on my phone. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously an alphabetized list for uh, ease of finding things. And because it's alphabetized, I was able to notice very quickly that I had like four or five movies called Phantom of the Something. Just amazing. <laughs> so I was just like, oh boy, Phantom of the Mall, Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, this this makes sense. So that's I mean, got to be how this came about. I mean, just the the buttery essence of Triple Threat. Where it's like, yeah, we can just, we can kick around two hours of content just based off a word. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because they all play on the same title, they all, in a manner of speaking, also play on the original Phantom of the Opera in some mm-hmm. way or another. But as I was telling you before we started recording, uh, I've never seen the original film Phantom of the Opera. I've never read the book, which I think came out in like 1909. Mm-hmm. Actually, until now for this show, I don't think I'd ever seen any actual adaptation of Phantom of the Opera. Mm, Interesting. I know, I think my grandparents, when I was younger, went and saw the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical when it came through Baltimore. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandmother bought the CD soundtrack, and at some point that found its way into my possession. And I used to listen to the soundtrack, like the music from the musical. Amazing. Back when I was in like middle school, high school, maybe something Just like that. Jam into the Phantom. I mean, there's some good tunes in there. Sure. And it's just a case of, you know, if I was, you know, if young me was going to be into or have even the slightest bit of interest in a musical like a stage musical, it was going to be the one that's kind of sort of horror, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. But yeah, I had had no real, uh, I, I had never seen any of these before. Um, mm-hmm. The Hammer movie, um, the, the one from 1962 that's actually called Phantom of the Opera we're going to be talking about, has been on my radar to watch for a while because I'm a Hammer fan. Mm-hmm. Um, just hadn't gotten around to it yet. 
Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is just one of those weird fucking movies that uh, is just begging to be seen, Mm -hmm. I feel. And so I bought the Blu-ray at some point. I think it's from Shout Factory. But um, my real connection, like the first way I ever even heard about that movie is one of the theatrical release movie posters for it is one of the two movie posters ever illustrated by Richard Corbin, (laughs) my favorite comic artist. It's all (laughs) making sense. And so like back when I was really getting into Richard Corbin, I, there's a website called muta.net M U U T A, which is like this guy in in another country. I, I might be in like Switzerland or something who is like a Corbin mega fan and basically made a database like with all of the stuff Corbin had ever done. I used to spend a lot of time on there when I was like piecing together my collection. Mm-hmm. And I, that's probably where I first heard about Phantom of the Paradise. Um, what was the other poster he did? Spookies, the movie from uh, that Vinegar Syndrome put out like a year oh. or two ago. Okay. Like a really low budget, shitty, like kids trapped in like a house with monsters movie. Sure. Yeah, so all right. <laughs> I now own both of those movies. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, eighties horror movie that you know, sometime in the last decade plus, I came across the title and was just like, "Well, this I have to see." <laughs> <laughs> but it's, had never seen any of them before. Um, so billsy of you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Got to catch them all, as you mm-hmm. always say. Mm-hmm. Did you have any knowledge prior to the show of any of these movies or any um, connection to Phantom of the Opera at all or in any of its many incarnations? So, I mean, Phantom of the Opera is like one of those things just in like the lexicon. Everyone like knows it's a thing. But yeah, I've never wasn't too super familiar with the story. I'm pretty sure I've seen like portion, many portions or maybe the whole thing of the Gerard Butler Phantom of the Opera, because my mom loved that, and we used to watch it all the yeah, time. I forgot about that one. And she had the hots for Gerard Bartler, so I think she used to watch that one a lot. <laughs> but I don't know if I ever sat through the whole thing. But besides that, that would have probably been the only version I had seen. Um, I don't know if I could have been, like, gun to my head, could have told you yes or no, there was a Hammer version of Phantom of the Opera, but... You know, if I was being a betting man, I could have said, yeah, there probably is. But again, wasn't familiar, like didn't know what he looked like, none of that. So um, the other two complete anomalies, uh, when this episode came up with the r- random number generator, I kind of stopped just to be like, well, you know, cl- okay, one of these is Phantom of the Opera, clearly, but you know, what is the connection? I didn't immediately think Phantom of the Paradise or, you know, and honestly, the name alone, Phantom of the Mall, and especially adding on Eric's Revenge, I was just like, this is going to, I was just expecting like some like lowbrow comedy from 1995. I don't know oh, yeah. why. I just, I just, what I expected because the, I'm sorry, but that name is fucking goofy. Why? We'll get into it. <laughs> Why they ever fucking thought they needed to add Eric's Revenge <laughs> Yeah, just makes absolutely no sense. I think it makes it better in a weird way, but you're right. It makes no sense. Yeah, I'm not even going to. Yes, but it's just like reading that and then seeing it come up and not even remembering that getting added to the spreadsheet. I'm just like, what? What are these? <laughs> 
and again, like I like to do. So that works out in my favor a lot because I'll just go in as blind as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, even like watching again, we'll get into it with Phantom of the Paradise, but there's like some 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 things in that where it's like completely out of left field. You oh, know, yeah, wasn't expected. The whole movie's out of left field. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Let's be honest. So, you know, like a good situation for me to get into, but just being like, what? What am I in store for was definitely uh, the name of the game here to, for me tonight. Yeah. Fan of the Paradise could have easily fit in comfortably with our um, high concept episode of just like fucking oh, batshit bonkers yeah. movies. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, I don't know if Brian De Palma has a history of experimenting with drugs, but that movie would certainly make you think that he was. I'd say there's no way he hasn't. <laughs> but... Yeah. All right. Uh, well, you want to dive into movie number one? Yes, please. All right. So from 1962, we have Hammer's incarnation of The Phantom of the Opera. Behind the cavernous walls of this great opera house, behind the gaiety and make believe, lies terror, unspeakable terror. <laughs> this phantom plotting and scheming behind so grotesque a mask. The thundering organ, his throne of doom. The empty theater, his altar of death. Christine! Why did he torment and torture the opera's brightest stars? What evil fascination did beauty hold for this beast? I mean, Hammer movies are just the best, right? I love them. I mean, you <laughs> I you got me, you solely got me into Hammer movies, and it's just been a good time ever since. And the thing is, you've got so many more of the classics oh, yeah. to discover. I mean, there's there's a bunch that I haven't seen either. Yeah. But, uh, man, just those, the Draculas and the Frankensteins, especially for me, mm-hmm. chef's kiss. And I've, I have seen... The Frank, how many Frankenstein ones are there? I think there's seven Frankenstein's and nine Draculas. Damn. Maybe, maybe ten or eleven if you count Brides of Dracula and the Seven Golden Vampires. Mm. That's a good one. See, that's <laughs> Which so was a crossover with the Shaw Brothers. Just a name like that alone. <laughs> so yeah, I I have plenty to watch, but it's like every every one I've watched, I really liked uh, the Mummy. I know mm-hmm. we've talked about that before, but yeah. Hammer films are just a good time. Hammer films feel more like classic Hollywood to me than classic Hollywood does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they definitely, all, all these like gothic horror movies that they do, they have a look, they have a vibe, you know, you can tell that they're like shooting on sets, mm-hmm. but oh, yeah. just everything looks so good and extravagant and the costumes yep. and everything and yep. everything has this kind of like phony lighting, but it's very like theatrical looking, mm-hmm. which I mean hell that even works better for phantom of the opera that's actually a good point to say like theatrical because yeah it's like clearly like everything is built on a sound stage and even like the way they they're filmed i mean sign of the times too where it wasn't like i don't think like extravagant cinematography or anything you know it's like the one thing that's actually really interesting that i watched a little bit of the uh the the shout factory blu-ray for this movie 
has seven million special features on it. And I picked one and watched a couple minutes of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so in the making of, they were talking about how uh, all the flashback scenes towards the end of the movie when you see like what really happened to the Phantom to turn him into the Phantom. Mm-hmm. Something I didn't notice while I was watching the movie, but that entire sequence, which is like eight minutes long, the entire thing is shot with Dutch angles. Oh. Just to give it like a different look and a feel. And like apparently that was just a trick they always used to do uh, flashback sequences. Mm-hmm. Oh. And um, so that's like the one even remotely extravagant thing that they did with the uh, the visuals of the movie. And I didn't even realize it, but like watching it in the special feature, I was like, oh, yeah, that works. It totally <laughs> makes yeah. it feel different from everything else. That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I've always liked, since I got into them, like, just the look and the feel of these movies, and almost all of them are directed and written by the same stable of creatives, and there's so many, like, recurring faces in a lot of them. Like, mm-hmm. to be completely honest, this, of all the Hammer films, maybe has the least recognizable faces for me personally of any of, of the movies I've seen. Like, like uh, you know, the, the love interest, the main love interest, Harry is played by a guy named Edward D'Souza, who's been in a couple of other Hammer movies. Mm-hmm. And then Herbert Lom, I think, has maybe been in one or two others. He's the one who played the Phantom. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the only one who really jumped out at me, and he has been in some other Hammer stuff, but the thing I mostly know him from is uh, the kind of asshole villain of the movie, um, Lord Ambrose. Ambrose Darcy. Yeah, it's Alfred. Yeah, Michael Goff, who played Alfred in all of the like Tim Burton and like the 90s Batman movies. Yeah. Yeah, uh, who plays a real son of a bitch in this. <laughs> oh, totally. And I don't think I've ever seen him in anything other than Batman movies until this. <laughs> yeah. He, well, actually, you have. Um, I don't even remember him in it. We didn't watch it super long ago, but he was in The Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, boy. But was he? I don't even remember what role he would have played. Uh, but yeah, that was on his Wikipedia when I was looking him up. Oh, that's a fever dream of a movie, that one. <laughs> but he's also in the first Hammer Dracula as well, which... Is like the other Hammer movie I've seen. Lord Ambrose DRC. <laughs> but that just shows, that just tells you why Tim Burton would have cast him because he was then in a bunch of other Tim Burton <laughs> stuff like uh, The Corpse Bride and, um, gosh, uh, I think his um, Alice in Wonderland because, you know, just like how Tim Burton put, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Vincent Price in. Edward Scissorhands, you know, he just loved all those guys mm-hmm. from the old horror movies and stuff, too, so. He was a great Alfred, Michael Golf. Yeah. <laughs> he was like the seminal Alfred for a certain generation, I oh, think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But he, he wasn't the modern, like, I'm a former SAS operative right, badass yeah. <laughs> who has my own TV show, Alfred. Yeah. This was like a just kind old of a, shit butler. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, so like I said, this one directed by Terrence Fisher, who it's just he has done a laundry list. He's like, I feel like he is the Hammer director for Hammer Horror stuff. He did a bunch of Draculas, a bunch of Frankensteins. He did The Mummy, their Dr. Jekyll movie, uh, just t- tons of stuff. And mm-hmm. also written by uh, Anthony Hines under the pen name John Elder and... Uh, Anthony Hines, who wrote this, is the son of one of the founders of Hammer Studios, mm-hmm. and um, he also just wrote just a ton of the Dracula movies, a bunch of the Frankensteins, some of the mummies. He wrote their one uh, werewolf movie. 
So, like, these guys knew what they were doing. Uh, by the 60s, they had their formula pretty much down pat. So, <laughs> Do you have any idea, like, was it, uh, I don't know if it's, like, a copyright thing? Because these, you know, so many Hammer stuff is old. Was there, a, is there ever any, like, um, legal issues between, like, Universal and Hammer with these things? Or is it all like just... them making remakes of Universal stuff, or I guess, or just any? Kind I mean, of... I think a at or some all... point they did have a deal with Universal because over the years Hammer had American distribution deals with a ton of different studios, which is why there hasn't been like a every single Hammer vam- like Dracula movie in one oh, box box really? set because the oh. rights in America belong to so many different people at different times that it's like legal loopholes but it's too bad i think as far as like phantom of the opera dracula frankenstein these are all based on books they're Mm -hmm. not remakes of universal films they're different adaptations so i do know that the third frankenstein movie they made so they did the curse of frankenstein and then the revenge of frankenstein the third one, I think, is called The Evil of Frankenstein. Um, by the time they did that one, they made some kind of a deal with Universal. So it was probably like during that like five-year period, Universal was the one that was releasing their films in the United States theatrically. Mm-hmm. And so in that one, they suddenly had the rights to use, I think the guy's name is Jack Pierce, the the guy who designed the classic universal flat top uh, Frankenstein makeup look. Mm-hmm. So when they made the third one, they could use that style of makeup because oh. they had like a deal with uh, universal and hammers version doesn't look exactly like the Boris Karloff version. Um, in fact, he, he looks significantly shittier in that movie, in my opinion, <laughs> but um, he does more resemble the, universal version of Frankenstein mm. that he did in the first two where he just kind of looks like a like a corpse, you know. He is cool looking though. But yeah, very yeah. different. Yeah. But uh yeah, so for the most part like again, Werewolf um like I think I don't know where the like if the Wolfman like the classic universal film is based on a an actual specific book or not, but mm-hmm. the one werewolf movie Hammer made is called The Curse of the Werewolf and I think that is based on a novel, but it doesn't have anything to do with whatever universal base there is on if it was anything. Yeah, he's not like the Wolfman. Yeah, yeah and then different. like Creature from the Black Lagoon, they never did their version of a Gilman. I think that was a 100% original thing to Universal, so mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, again, Phantom of the Opera is a book. And so, no, I don't really think they ever had any problems that I'm aware of with Ryan stuff Miller, with Universal. Hammer historian. I mean, I'm far from full-fledged historian, but I do own an obnoxious number of Hammer books. <laughs> mm. That's good. When I got into them like 10 years ago, I really got into them. <laughs> yeah. I would like actually like a, a good book about the history and the... Well, after the show, I can uh, give you some recommendations. Yeah. Yes, please, thank you. But uh, yeah, so uh, just what did you what did you generally think? It was, is this I mean, being it's, your it's first re- like quote unquote true viewing of a actual Phantom of the Opera movie? Yeah, um, I dug it. I mean, it was a good time. You know, it was cool. I watched this one last, so it was like kind of had a feeling of what to expect as far as like. 
the revenge kind of double cross kind of idea and then just you know s- sprinkling the hammer on there that uh <laughs> i knew i was going to enjoy and i was just kind of it's basically the same things we said just like that that kind of uh aesthetic that hammer movies have i just really enjoy and then it's like they make some awesome sets like the the underground set with the organ and all the swirling pool of water the well, i was like this is just the coolest shit i feel like i've seen it so long and it's 60 years old or whatever like <laughs> i was eating it up i loved his design too like i which is a fun thing for me especially now like getting into hammer stuff over the last few years thanks to you like knowing a thing like having an idea of what a property is but then seeing like a such an older an old view of it that's different than what you expect because like their their dracula is different their all their creature stuff is different this especially is like a lot different than the you know half mask of like white plastic with the with the cape and the hat that i just kind of like you know in my mind's eye see as the phantom but then this to be something kind of completely different mm-hmm. was awesome and even if anything i just wish you could have seen more of his uh fucked up face at the end because it's like blink and you miss it and then the movie like ends pretty abruptly but yeah i was eating it up i really enjoyed it i was surprised we didn't see his face when he, it gets revealed to uh michael goff's character like right in that moment when he pulls the mask off and he like recoils in horror and runs away that would have been the time i was expecting because it kind of mirrors the scene in the curse of frankenstein their first frankenstein movie when peter cushing first sees christopher lee's face and if memory serves they like did a zoom in on christopher lee's face as the monster and then they like sped it up for the edit so it like zooms crash zooms into his face like i was Mm -hmm. almost expecting something just like that when he pulls like the bandages off in that movie and then the mask in this but then when they didn't show it i was like the movie feels like it's almost over don't tell me they're not gonna show us at all Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you finally do see it right at the end. Like the, his face gets revealed like what? 90 seconds from the end of the film. <laughs> if that. And it looks cool from what the yeah. little you see it kind of like bummed me out. I was like, Damn, I wish they did show it earlier. Just get like a good, like you said, give me that smash cut to the close up to that face. Cause it looked cool. Yeah. It's not like a, uh, like a Lon Chaney monster face. It's more, it's like a burn victim kind of. Yeah. But like not even what you'd normally expect from a burn victim, which is like, I always feel like anything I see of hammer stuff, it's always like, you know, it's always adjacent to what you expect. Yeah. Which is like what I enjoy so much. Yeah. But I enjoyed it overall. I mean, I thought it was a good time. I was, was expecting to get smoked by a chandelier at the end, but, um, (laughs) yeah, you know, all in all, a good time. I'm actually very curious, like, what you think as a much more of the Hammer fan, much more experienced watching them. Like, does it yeah. stack up? Does it even need, it doesn't necessarily have to stack up, but what did you think? I mean, they always have, like, the, the romance stuff. So, like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that in this. Like, a lot more of, like, a trying to solve a mystery and, um, like, the love interest of the... Uh, main singer and the uh, the producer of the play and all of that to mm-hmm. the point where when I felt like I was pretty because f- I knew the movie was only like it's less than an hour and a half yeah it's like 88 minutes or something or not yeah, even at some point I remember thinking like it feels like we're getting pretty close to the end and the phantom has hardly been in this at all and then he finally shows up at the end and you know it like 
it, it's kind of weird. It, it bucked my expectations a little bit, and I kind of found out the reason for it uh, when I was watching that special feature I was talking about. But you know, the I was always under the impression in the original, which again I haven't seen the Universal film with Lon Chaney that. Uh, the Phantom was more of like a psychotic murderer. <laughs> right. And um, in this one, pretty much all of his murder is done by like a little, like a sidekick character who doesn't speak and just like lives in the yeah, sewers. Like Quasimodo. Yeah. yeah. He like does some stabbing and whatnot. Stabs that one dude right in the eye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which surprised me. Um and then, you know, I always figured that the Phantom was, you know, a somewhat sympathetic character depending on the version you're watching. But in this, he's like almost without fault, <laughs> like, right. aside from, you know, it's really just maybe maybe over. chopping up some costumes to, to ruin a play here or there, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And so, like, I, I was a little surprised by that. I liked it because it bucked my expectations, but... Apparently, the reason for that is that um, the early 60s was like the tail end of American actor Cary Grant's career, and he was like pseudo-retired, and uh, he visited, like part of his thing was he felt like the golden age of cinema was ending, and uh, he wasn't happy with the scripts he was getting, and he was tired of playing the same characters over and over again. So he was in Europe and he visited Bray Studios, which is where they filmed a lot of the Hammer stuff and expressed interest in doing a Hammer horror film to like Mm. do something different. And so Anthony Hines, who wrote this, wrote the role of the Phantom specifically for Cary Grant. Oh. And so part of his thinking was, well, Cary Grant's like this big star, I, I know he wants to do something different, but I can't have him running around just like slashing people's throats. So he like wrote the Phantom to be a little more sympathetic and less at fault and have like a henchman do all his murdering for him mm-hmm. to like kind of fit Cary Grant. And then for whatever reason, Cary Grant like backed out. So <laughs> that's wow. how. And then after that, they immediately went to, well, we want Christopher Lee, but he was already busy filming the Pirates of Blood River <laughs> uh, for Hammer. <laughs> mm hmm. So uh, they ended up on Herbert Lom, but like that's how this version of the movie ended up with its phantom kind of the way that he is, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's totally true. Like you can see them like it's avoided to make him like a clear villain. Yeah. Which is like even like odd to think like it makes me want to watch like whichever version, even the Gerard Butler one, like how sympathetic is he played in other versions? Mm hmm. Probably now, do you know, because I've this. never seen that one, is that one based on the Andrew Lloyd Webber version? Do you know? Yes. It I want to okay. say yes. Like, same same music, but they, you know, the people in the movie redo the songs and stuff, of course, but um, mm-hmm. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I'd be curious to see a couple other versions. I mean, we still have a couple versions, in a manner of speaking, to talk about on mm-hmm. this episode, but I'd be curious now to see the original, original and I'd be curious to see the Andrew Lloyd Webber version, which, just based on the music that I'm familiar with, definitely seems like the Phantom is a pretty sympathetic character in that version as well. Right. So, yeah, like I'd what, be curious to see how much murder he does in that one. Yeah, like how dirty do his hands get in other <laughs> yeah. versions? But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think because you're true that this is like how we've talked about 
you know, prior monster movies, like how much actual runtime of a film is given to the quote unquote star. Like, you yeah. know, I mean, he's probably, it's probably not very high for him. I, th- I think thankfully it works in its favor that it's under 90 minutes. So it's not like it doesn't go on endlessly without even having the phantom in it. But mm-hmm. I did think it was legitimately kind of creepy when, um, He's like mysteriously talking to them in the dressing room and they don't know where he is. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Like that was pretty creepy. She's alone in the dressing room and there's just a voice like, You will sing only for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, ooh. You can't see it. Like, yeah, that would creep the shit out of anybody. <laughs> yeah. And then the fucking rat catcher with his bag of dirty rats that he uh, wants to make into pies. So gross. And the women right. digging through the trash looking for valuables at the outside the theater. <laughs> yeah, there's some good some good stuff in there. Some good uh, little, like, world building. Yeah. But it's like, and uh, we've talked, you know, on and off the show about, like, me not having seen too many, like, older films, especially 60s, 70s and stuff. But it's just like, every time I watch a Hammer movie, I just want to watch more of it. Because it just looks, it's just, it just, just fits. Just got to get you to act on those feelings. It just Because you always do say that. <laughs> I know I just don't have, I gotta like get my hands on them or whatever. Gotta start renting them or, you know, the whole thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I really do enjoy the hell out of Hammer movies. Yeah. All thanks to you, Milsos. Oh, I do what I can. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, kind of like not a ton to say just because it's, uh, it's just being beyond being just like a good time. I mean, it's, it's a, they don't make them like they used to because it's like this, <laughs> yeah, this. it's pretty simple. It moves at a pretty brisk pace, uh, like a lot of older movies. When it gets into the whole like uncovering the mystery, there's mm-hmm. a lot of like characters like kind of figuring out things just so they can say them out loud for the audience to be able to hear them. True, even though it's true. like, how the fuck did you come to that conclusion? Right, right. Uh, a lot of that stuff, but I don't know. Like, it's something that you can criticize, but whether or not it's right to do this it just feels like well that's that's old movies i mean yeah which is I'm fine i'm not going to i'm not going to let the uh you know the ends justify the means i guess for me yeah and i still think the quality's so high and then it's just like for us especially just to see again that like different version of a thing we think we know and then even just shit again makeup being so good for a movie from the 60s being different like Mm-hmm. I'll just, I'll like always applaud Hammer films for that kind of stuff. I even do think, you, you mentioned it earlier, but like the mask is pretty unusual and I just like that it's uh, unique, you know? It's not mm-hmm. just a half of a... Yeah, totally. Like a play mask, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't even know what it is. It's just like that one eyeball peeking out from like a white face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks more like a somebody from Slipknot more than... <laughs> Anything else? But yeah, all in all, yeah, good stuff. It's a good time. It's a good time. Hammer does it. <laughs> Next movie, please. All right, jumping ahead uh, more than a decade, we have 1974's The Phantom of the Paradise. Roll on thunder, shine on lightning The days are long and the nights are frightening Nothing matters anywhere and that's the hell of it Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well, some go wiser, you just grew older You never listened anywhere and that's the hell of it 
Good for nothing, bad in bed. Nobody likes you, you're better off dead. Goodbye, goodbye. We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. Born defeated, died in vain. Super destructive, you were hooked on pain. And though your music lingers on, all of us are glad you're gone. If I could live my life half as worthlessly as you, I'm convinced that I'll wind up burning too. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, written and directed by Brian De Palma, early-ish in his career. What do you say about this movie? <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen a lot of rock operas. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not a big fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show personally, but this would pair well with it, I think. I've never seen that, and I can only maybe guess it's similar or feels some way like this but for sure uh, they they definitely share a uh, subgenre i mean this i mean i'll just come out and say it i mean getting into an episode of you know phantom of the opera takeoffs like i would just to see it in on film to see it come up and be like there is a cross between uh I don't even know. Darth Vader, a, <laughs> a vulture, like uh, the cartoon Silverhawks, like all, <laughs> you know, mashed up. And then, you know, then you inject Phantom of the Opera into it. I'd be like, what? How is that a movie? Well, it's this. Uh, the funny thing is, to me, the mask you're referring to that looks kind of like Silverhawks and all. It immediately makes me think of uh, the character Griffith from the Berserk manga and anime. <laughs> All right, I, don't, um, yeah, I don't have he, a frame of reference for that one, but I'll go with it. When he becomes, he goes through a transformation and be, goes from being the main character Guts's like best friend and confidant, like turns from that into the series' most like dastardly horrible villain. Mm-hmm. He has a helmet that like fuses to his head kind of that looks very similar to this with like a bird aesthetic to it mm-hmm. and is also silver. Mm-hmm. So that's immediately what I go to, but I mean, this entire movie's off the fucking hook. <laughs> the phantom yeah. character is bonkers. I mean, even he sounds crazy. Oh yeah. Also he, he had to do a quick stint in prison where they pulled all his teeth out and, replace them with metal teeth <laughs> yeah and then he uh escapes in like a scooby-doo kind of cartoon sequence of him hiding in a box and falling out of the uh-huh. back of a truck in the middle yeah. of new york city and no one just notices and he just runs off yeah it's like i i feel like this one requires a little bit of a description so it's essentially in this world there's a music producer who's like the hot shit he's in charge of like all the biggest acts and his name is swan and he is played by real-life musician Paul Williams. And uh, he sees this, char- this character, Winslow Leach, played by William Finley, who's like a nobody, but he's been writing this opera. And he sees him perform a little bit of it on a piano, and he essentially tells him, like, oh, uh, give me your music, and, you know, I'll get in touch with you, and we'll work something out, when really what he wants to do is steal the music mm-hmm. to then used to be like the opening performance for his new 
I thought it was going to be a nightclub, but it's more of a theater that he's opening called yeah. The Paradise. Mm-hmm. Hence why the movie is called Phantom of the Paradise, which before you see it and learn that there is a club or whatever, a theater called The Paradise, the title never made sense to me. Like Phantom, the Phantom of Paradise would have made sense to me. But mm-hmm. Phantom of the Paradise, I always just was like, what does this title mean? <laughs> um, right. And so then uh, William Winslow Leach, the guy who wrote the music, comes to confront Swan, gets thrown in prison. Like you said, they pull out his teeth and give him metal teeth. Then he comes back and like goes berserk and puts on a crazy costume and hides inside the Paradise Theater and tries to cause problems for Swan, just like you would imagine the Phantom of the Opera doing. And then Swan like convinces the Phantom to work with him and like finish his opera, like claiming, oh, we'll work together now and I'll make everything right. And then he just fucks him over again. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. Swan might be the biggest villain we've ever had on the show. <laughs> He's a pretty big dick. Yeah. But then it goes even further where you find out that Swan it it's it's this movie it, instead of just Phantom of the Opera it's like tackling a Faust. whole bunch of different literary mm-hmm. stuff so it's it's got a um what's it called the um the the picture of Dorian Gray the painting of Dorian Gray yep the one where like a, a guy wants to be young so there's like a picture painted of him and then the the painting ages but he stays the same age it's kind of like that where swan when he was younger was going to kill himself because he thought he had a beautiful face and didn't want to see it age and then the devil comes to him and is like if you sign in blood on this contract you will stay the same age and always be beautiful Mm-hmm. And then Swan is able to have other people sign contracts in blood and like steal their souls. So then later on in the movie, uh, the Phantom tries to kill himself, but he can't die because he signed a contract and his life is linked with Swan. So he can't die until Swan dies. It's mm-hmm. so all over the place. <laughs> the movie's nuts. It is absolutely watched... madness, this movie. We've watched crazy mass movies on this show, but. This is certainly up there as like the wildest fever dream, clearly made in the seventies. I don't know who or what was on drugs, but had to have been plenty of people because it's just so bonkers. Like I said before, it would fit in perfectly with like Barbarella and uh, and Zardoz on that episode mm. we did. It's so bonkers, and it's like it's trying to tell. Like an actual narrative story, but it's one of those movies that with its musical numbers and just like oddball comedy sequences, it just feels like you're watching a movie with a plot and then all of a sudden you realize 10 minutes have gone by and it's just pure nonsense happening. Mm -hmm. Like what happened to the plot of the movie? How long has it been since I turned it on? I feel like I'm in a dream state. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it's just, it's so like indicative of the time. It just feels like there's so many movies, like- I don't know if people were just making movies and like how they got away with some things, like how this got, <laughs> how something like this just got made and everybody was on board. Cause even like, I mean like right now I have the IMDB up for the, the movie and it just like auto plays scenes in the background. <laughs> and I'm just like seeing some of the stuff. I'm like, this movie is outrageous. Cause it's certainly 
you know, wears its Phantom of the Opera, you know, uh, on its sleeve. But then some of the other shit that happens, I mean, weird bird phantom, he's got dynamite, he's blowing shit up. I mean, he's making jams. There's quite a few musical numbers that just like are, it's almost like a musical because you get the whole performance, you know? It's just. The one thing that I do think is really interesting about the movie that I, I really latched onto and kind of dug was the film opens in the beginning with Winslow Leach before he becomes the Phantom. Like I said, he's kind of a nobody and he's just playing this song on his piano. That's like this song that he's written for his opera and he's performing it the way he thinks it should be performed. And like, especially in the beginning before he meets the female lead, he feels like he's the only one who can perform this music properly. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the big evil corporate uh, businessman music producer steals it. And then throughout the film, I think it's really interesting to see all the different ways that he like bastardizes the guy's song. (laughs) It's like right down to that scene where he's like, so his original band, like his big band that he represents is called, uh, Fruit Loops. The, the, the Juicy Fruits. Juicy Fruits. Right. And um, they kind of have this uh, greaser, almost oh, yeah. uh, like doo-woppy oh, yeah, sure. mix, like melding into uh, the Beach Boys vibe. And he originally intends he's going to have them do the song, but then uh, the Phantom blows them up with a car bomb. And so the Juicy Fruits are out, <laughs> and right. now... Swan has to like pick a different performer or group to do the song. And there's a scene where he's uh, sitting at his desk, which looks like a giant golden record. <laughs> and the camera's just kind of going around in a circle as like the darkness in the background illuminates different kinds of musicians who play the same song that Winslow wrote, but in different styles. So there's like a country version and like a, like a black kind of soul group version. There's like a, a hard rock version. Uh, I can't remember what the first one was, but it was just interesting to see all the different interpretations of the same song in different musical styles. I thought that was kind of cool throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's just, and it's like the ultimate disrespect of, <laughs> of like yeah. Swad, like took his shit. You know, sent him to prison, took his teeth, made him crazy, and yeah, just like ruined. And then tried to wall him up inside a building, like in a studio (laughs) behind some bricks. Like, no wonder Swan made a deal with the devil. He's exactly that kind of guy. Yeah. Just a rotten bastard. Mm hmm. All five feet, two of them. (laughs) But then you, like, it's just crazy to me, like, I, this movie, like I said, it was written by Brian De Palma. It was uh, directed by him. He did originally write the script or part of the script with a uh, like a co-writer who he had worked on the movie Sisters with before this. But then they were like shopping it around and um, like s- studios w- like that were interested weren't going to give them enough money. So the co-writer decided she like wanted to leave the project or wouldn't let what she wrote be part of it. So Brian De Palma basically went back and rewrote the entire thing and like wrote all of her stuff out of it. So 
the at the end of the day, this movie is like one hundred percent Brian De Palma, his idea, his script, his direction. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's crazy to me, like absolutely crazy, is if you look at the rest of his filmography. If this was like some passion project for him, maybe it's because this movie didn't perform well, but there is nothing else in his filmography that's even remotely close to this. Because he started out like his first couple of like really low budget, like independent movies. A couple of them had Robert De Niro in them. They were comedies. But then he made Sisters horror movie, Carrie horror movie, The Fury horror movie. Dress to Kill is kind of like a giallo. Blowout is like a thriller. Uh, Scarface, everybody knows. Body Double is another kind of Jallo style movie. Then The Untouchables, like mob movie. Bonfire of the Vanities, which is like a you know yuppie Wall Street crime kind of movie based on a best selling book. Mm-hmm. Then Raising Cain is like a multiple personality horror thriller. Carlito's Way, another kind of like cops and mobsters movie. Mission Impossible, Snake Eyes, which is like a heist film. And then eventually Mission to Mars, which is a sci-fi film. And then he's done some other stuff recently um, that's like more independent, like the Black Dahlia. But nowhere in this career is there anything else even remotely like this. I mean, I'd say he's got like an eclectic career just based on like this based on all of that but yeah there's far and away yeah i mean it's kind of broad like i said he started with comedies a lot of his movies do have like a sense of humor to them but for the most part we're talking horror thriller and like kind of crime drama action and then there's this (laughs) i mean this thing is fucking bananas it's like a crazy nonsense rock opera comedy like i don't know what to call it (laughs) fever dream yeah yeah it's just crazy to me that if this was like some passion project to his my only guess is because it was pretty early in his career that like he finally got a little bit of movement in his career with like sisters and carrie i don't i don't know exactly where this fell it might have been like after the fury or, or dressed to kill or something but like finally had enough pull to get this movie made that he always wanted to make, and then it did terribly, so he was just like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to do what I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> That's my only guess. Otherwise, this just feels like it does not belong. I'd love to know, because, you know, up until last night, you know, if I watched, uh, you know, an interview with Brian De Palma, and he brought, someone brought up Fan of the Paradise, I'd have no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> so now that's all I want to see, is someone bring it up to him. Just well, let me tell to you, hear more. interesting that you say that, I have a big recommendation for you and anybody who's listening, honestly, I've seen it twice, but it's been long enough now that I don't remember what he had to say about Phantom of the Paradise. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is a movie, I guess you'd call it a movie. It's not exactly a movie. It's not exactly a documentary, but let's just call it a movie called De Palma. I think it's made by like Roman Coppola or someone, but it, it is a film that is just a two hour interview with Brian De Palma where he chronologically discusses every film in his career. Oh, uh, and it's like an actual movie. Like it's a documentary essentially that came out like within the last decade I've seen it and it is really good because he is just so open and, you know, brutally honest about everything, but it literally goes movie by movie by movie. He talks, it's just him. You never see the interviewer. It's just him sitting in a room talking about his movies 
and it's like interspersing clips of the films as he talks about them. And it's amazing. And I felt at the time, and I still feel now, that I think that a movie like that should exist for every like great auteur filmmaker. I almost want nothing more. Yeah, like give Um, me my, like that movie's just called De Palma. Give me my Scorsese. Give me my Coppola. Give me my, you know, Spielberg, Tarantino, Carpenter. Like Del Del Toro, all of them. Yeah, (laughs) but I highly recommend it. It's great. And uh, 2016, it's on HBO Max, a 24 production. Right, Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I will be watching that. It's so good, um, and yeah, I actually I I just reminded myself that it exists, <laughs> and I want to watch it again now, because like in recent memory, I watched Bonfire of the Vanities, which was like a, a like kind of an infamous train wreck of a movie, and now I've seen this, you know, and it is it's it's feature length, it's a hundred an hour forty nine minutes, yeah, and like I said, that's all it is. It's just him talking about his movies. There is an HBO original Spielberg. From yeah, I've, I've seen it. Have you have you seen it? No. It's good, but it's, it's not the same thing. It's more of like a documentary about Spielberg and it feels like more of a puff piece. Gotcha. Where like the thing I love about De Palma is it's like chronologically it's movie by movie by movie. And Spielberg kinda does that, but there's also movies that they leave out entirely where you can feel like, oh, Spielberg at this point in his career isn't super proud of uh the movie Hook with Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. So even though that was like a huge movie at the time that a lot of people fondly remember, they don't even mention it in the Spielberg Interesting. movie. Yeah. And that one I think has more talking heads of like other people like blowing smoke up uh, Spielberg's ass and like, you know, stuff that's interesting about like his early life and everything. Nah, um, yeah, I'm more in line with a, something like De Palma. But yeah, the I De Palma one, it's just like pure, simple and it's helped by the fact that De Palma is such like a no nonsense. Like he's perfectly willing to like talk about his failures along with his successes. Mm. So I like it. No, I highly recommend that out. Yeah, just good called st- De Palma. Good stuff, Millie. Um, phew. what else is there to say about Phantom of the Paradise? I mean, it's like I don't even know how much of a rant we just went on about this, but it just—it's almost like you got to see it to believe it. Yeah, that's just... kind of what I was just thinking. Like, I gave that description where I tried to explain what the movie is. I feel like I only scratched the surface. Visually, it's pretty interesting. He has, a, like, a classic thing with De Palma is split screen, and he has a split screen sequence in there, which it feels like he just has to do in every movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was kind of cool with the car bomb and the uh, the juicy yeah. fruits. Yeah. Uh, some of the sets are fucking crazy looking. Like I said, the, the, the giant desk that's shaped like a mm-hmm. golden record. Yeah. Uh, that just, little room that he com- that the Phantom composes in, yeah, where he's like plugging cool, his voice actually. box into the yeah. into the wall. It's <laughs> weird voice, just <sighs> that like gothic rooftop sequence in the rain where he's like get, trying to kill himself. I feel like I had to have seen the Bird Phantom at some point in my travels, but I I don't <laughs> think I have. But I'm just that kind of just blows my mind. He's cat. cool looking. He's got like oh, yeah. the one eye. He's got the head. He's got the metal teeth. The black outfit. Yep. He's got that cool voice. He's, he's an interesting lipstick. character. He's got the. He really does have like a his whatever's hanging off the front of him is like straight up Darth Vader <laughs> yeah. techno junk. Yeah, the thing where he, that like allows him to speak. Yeah, the movie's nuts, but watch it. Yeah, and of of 
kind of interesting note, uh, all of the phantoms singing when they like f- that, that part where uh, Swan is like messing with all the dials to make his fucked up voice sound like a normal singing voice. Mm-hmm. All of the phantom singing is actually Paul Williams, the guy playing Swan. <laughs> yes. Which I feel like I know I've seen that guy before. But I went through his IMDb and like nothing like jumped out to me. I'd be like, oh yes, clearly that was it. But he's in a couple of the Muppet movies, which is where I feel like I might have seen him yeah. when I was younger. But then I just keep thinking he look. I can't think of the guy's name. I think it's Toby something from like he was Arna Mazzola in Captain America. Uh, Toby Jones. Yeah, I feel like he kind of just looks a hair like him, but I don't think that's it either. But <laughs> he's know. great. He's a great villain. I think the only thing. When I was getting ready to watch this, again, no clue, didn't never saw a poster, didn't know anything about it. But I think like I had to use um just watch to find out where to watch it. Uh-huh. And I was trying to like avoid looking at anything at the same time. Like I tried to just scroll quickly. And I think the only thing I caught was I I don't know if it was on Just Watch or something else that just like it mentioned something about like you know, enigmatic Phil Spector like character, which Phil Spector yeah. is like that weirdo music producer. So I was like, I was like, what is what is this? So when I got into it, it was him. I was like, this is perfect. I was like, look at this guy. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Walk coming out of two way mirror doors everywhere inside the <laughs> yeah, paradise. where he turns the little candelabra and the the yeah. mirror opens. Yeah. And I mean, this is clearly just a movie that only gets made at a certain time in man's history you know it like yeah. would never it's like never to be repeated never <laughs> ne- would never a couple of fun facts about this one uh Please. the two members of daft punk cited this as their all-time favorite film amazing <laughs> and of um while the movie did bomb pretty bad and it uh like so bad that like the following year after it came out or maybe it was like two years later um, they tried to like rebrand it a little bit. They did a new poster, which is the one that's by Richard Corbin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they like re-released it still didn't really help, but weirdly, I don't know how this happens. There's one place in the world where this movie in this one localized area was incredibly popular. And that is in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. <laughs> I I must know more. <laughs> uh, the movie, for some reason, in this one place, was so popular that it played in theaters straight for four months, where most places it was gone in a couple weeks because it didn't do well, and then continued to play in local theaters in Manitoba uh, or in Winnipeg for uh, two years non-continuously. So like, it was always kind of around, but it wasn't like there every single week sort of thing. In Winnipeg alone, the soundtrack album sold over 20,000 copies. Uh, and, like, still, uh, you know, the movie came out in the 70s, like, 20, 30 years later. The movie was still so popular that in 2005 and 2006, the city held Phantom Palooza festivals with screenings of the movie, appearances and interviews with the cast, and in the 2006 festival, they had a live concert by Paul Williams. I mean, I need the feature-length documentary about this. Yeah. Like, how is it that just, just like one city is obsessed with this movie when it has nothing to do with that city? <laughs> like, not... I'm just fascinated. 
I'm blown away. Just <laughs> it's just fucking just, weird. I mean, that's the kind of shit we got to get into, Millsy, is going to obscure <laughs> movie festivals. That's our first road trip is the uh, Phantom Palooza. They only did it the two years that I saw, but and it's been a while now. Mills, so I'm saying it right now. Put this on celluloid. You know, this is going to go to the Library of Congress. <laughs> if that comes back, we're going. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Got to get you a uh, Phantom of the Paradise uh, helmet, and we'll put some tin foil Dude, on your I'll teeth. Rock, I'll rock that helmet. Get you Ooh, tin foil on my teeth. Ah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, crazy-ass, bonkers-ass movie. Yeah. No better way to say it. Mm-hmm. Finally, we have film number three from 1989, uh, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. He's there. Behind the wall. Beneath your own feet. You all tried to destroy him. In your greed, you tore everything precious from him. But Eric remembers. What if Eric didn't really die in that fire? And now... Eric will make sure you remember too. What a title. <laughs> so this is kind of like what if the Phantom of the Opera which is already like a story about like murder and whatever. What if we just took it and turned it into an 80s teen slasher movie? Right. And, you know, if you're going to make an 80s teen slasher movie, you're going to set it either in a like a summer camp or a mall. So they mm-hmm. picked the mall. Yep. It's like a, a kind of it's an idea that's kind of genius in its simplicity. Indeed. The actual outcome is kind of questionable. I mean, the execution is bad. I mean, <laughs> also, I wanted to what else was hot in 1989, Melzi? Karate. Yeah, for some reason the Phantom just uh, practices karate in uh, his yep. like subterranean dwelling. Right, in his doo-doo subterranean dwelling. He's getting a good pump. He's got the whole bow flex down there, and uh, he's doing a lot of karate. Yeah, punching bag the whole nine yards. How did this movie get made? Um, I did watch some of the special features on this. This is actually an Arrow video release. Of course it is. I don't have the like big two disc special edition, but um, so the movie was conceived of by a couple of guys named Scott J. Schneid and Tony Michaelman, and they had previously written one or two episodes of the Friday the 13th, the series television show, like anthology series, mm-hmm. and then... One of them, I think it was Scott Schneid, basically just got in his head like, we should write a spec script, and this was their idea. Let's set a slasher movie in a mall. And then when it finally did get made into a movie, the like final script credit goes to a guy named Robert King. I don't know where he came into it, but yeah, I think they just sold it on the idea of it's a slasher movie in a mall. Uh, I yes. don't know exactly how they came upon the Phantom of the Opera elements, but... <laughs> just to hear you say it like that is amazing. Um, I mean, all like the aspects of like the Phantom and Revenge and, you know, hanging out in the catacombs and 
picking people off. It's all there. It's just love in the story. Mall. It's all there. It's in the mall. Um, they do. They, he does get you know played as the villain though in the end. Yeah, and you know in the beginning, kind of not like I was a little bit surprised. Like kind of the same way I was with the Hammer version, where at the end I was like, oh well, the Phantom's not really a bad guy. Like through a lot of this movie, it's like so basically. The main character is a girl named Melody, and her boyfriend was named Eric. They were, like, madly in love, like the perfect couple. But he kind of lived in, like, a, I guess, like a low-income neighborhood, and there was this big business people, like, trying to force out the people who live there because they wanted to build a mall. And his family wouldn't move, so they end up, like, firebombing the house, and Eric gets trapped inside and burned, and everyone thinks he's dead. Cut mm-hmm. to just one year later, they have this mall erected. <laughs> uh, they've built this gigantic mall, which, based on dialogue in the movie, I think is supposed to be, like, six stories tall. Because at one point, Pauly Shore's in the movie. He mentions that Sam Goody is on the third floor. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sequence there that leads to a scene in an elevator that's going up. So right. I'm sitting there thinking, like, I'm sure they didn't think this out, but how fucking tall is this mall supposed <laughs> to be that they built in a year? <laughs> but, yeah, so he instead, like, he survives. And instead mm-hmm. of, like, Seeking going to help. get help or being like, hey, I'm still alive, he's just like, you know what I'm going to do? I think the smart thing for me to do right now is just live in the sewer. Yeah. <laughs> and then they build the mall on top of him. Yep. And uh, so then he comes up and he runs around in the air ducts and he murders seemingly anybody. Like there are parts where he's like uh, his ex, like his girlfriend is being attacked in the parking lot. So he gets a crossbow and shoots the mm-hmm. like weirdo who's attacking her. It turns out to be the mall piano player <laughs> in like the food court uh-huh. <laughs> for some reason. I mean, he kills... gets bitten in the dick by a snake. <laughs> yes, you heard it right. <laughs> it's fucking weird. But, like, so for a little while, it seems like, okay, he's kind of a good guy. Like, he's protecting her mm-hmm. and, like, trying to get revenge on the people who wronged him. But then by the end, he's just a fucking psychopath running around murdering anybody. Yeah. And trying does, to blow up the entire mall. Yeah, he kills a kills a uh, maintenance guy, seemingly, for no reason. Yeah, all the security guards at the beginning, like, they didn't really do anything wrong. But, like, just anytime he sees somebody else in the air ducts or whatever, he just yeah. kills them. Right. Second movie tonight that just has unexplained dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. How did this guy learn how to, he's like a high school student who's been living underground, uh, like basically before the internet for a year. How did he learn how to create like an explosive device with a little ticking timer thing, like a digital timer? We just don't ask that. You know, it's just, he's been down there getting a pump for the whole year, you know, (laughs) working out. I mean, he's kind of dressed like, uh. I just kind of just like a late eighties kind of <laughs> like mall kid. He just well, that's the, the thing. He has access to the mall. So like at night he can run around and steal whatever he wants. Yeah. Like they even show at one point that like when he finally is reunited with the girlfriend down in his subterranean dwelling, he has like closets full of clothes he's stolen from the mall for her. Right. So like, yeah, he's decked out in shit from Do the they... mall. Like everything comes from the mall. Uh, he steals the crossbow from the mall. Presumably he stole the TV that he watches down there from the mall. Is there a, uh, anything about the mask where he picks that up? I don't even remember. Uh, yeah. In the beginning of the movie, um, for no real good reason, he like, there's a mannequin head and he like hits it with something and it like 
that piece of the mannequin face cracks that. into essentially the classic uh, Phantom of the Opera mask, which I thought was kind of neat. Like, okay, if you're going to do it in a mall, yeah. that's, a, that's a fun take on it. It's like half of a mannequin head. But then I think the interesting thing is that he can only wear the mask when he's wearing a hat because you see him numerous times. He just like places it on his face and then pulls the hat down to hold the <laughs> mask on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a not a great makeup. I mean, it's fine, I guess. But it's, yeah, uh... it's one of those makeups that looks pretty good until the actor has to do anything, and then you mm-hmm. just see the bulges in the rubber. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like at first, like the first couple times you see it, and then he's like running around in the sewers. He's like dimly lit from one side, and so it was like almost silhouetted, and it looked pretty mm-hmm. good. But then by the end, when all the action is taking place, he's just yeah. in clear lighting and looks pretty bad. Yeah, I just think tonally this one's just wrong. You know, just with a name like Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge for some <laughs> reason, like just, yeah, and being like in the eighties, it doesn't like. You know, it doesn't particularly like feel like, you know, Technicolor 80s or the, the music's not there. I mean, there's there's nothing yeah. like tongue in cheek about the entire movie where I just feel like it should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, they fucking subtitled it Eric's Revenge is the goofiest <laughs> movie subtitle I feel like ever. Yeah. Why? Why? We'll never know. Unless you found that in the interwebs. No, somewhere. I have no idea why they tacked that on there. Just... I don't even. I have got this... uh, the one song in the movie that's kind of good is "Heart of Darkness" by Stan Bush, uh, which is like their song that you hear a couple times. Yep, you know, yep, it plays yep. on the jukebox, and he puts mm-hmm. it on when he's like working out. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the movie could use some better music. I mean, you're right that it's it doesn't have that like kind of Technicolor '80s vibe, but I mean, it does take place in a legitimate 1980s mall, the same mall that they filmed uh, Chopping Mall in. Coincidentally, oh, nice. So, like, without even trying, it has like, and just like the girls' hairstyles and everything, and all the clothing stores, like it, and Sam Goody and all that stuff. Like, just because of where it was set, and it's not like Stranger Things where they're like trying too hard to like recreate mm-hmm. stuff from that period. Like, it was a functional mall in that time period. Like, it goes a long way in just filling me with the warm fuzzies when I'm watching really? it. Yeah, I, for me, it just felt like. It felt like dour, <laughs> you know. It's just like I was just like, oh, yeah. Like I loved all the scenes in the mall, and, like the fucking yogurt shop, and just like looking at the names of other stores and shit in the background, and just thinking to myself, like, my local mall is you know one story, and I, I would say two thirds of the stores are empty or filled with like little pop up pieces of shit with like just like a cloth sign hanging because it's not permanent, right? And right. it's just like to look at a mall nowadays and see how shitty it is and then to see a mall like that in this movie mm-hmm. and just be like god every single store was filled and they were like new happen in places clothing stores music stores and all this stuff and i just i did love just like spending time in the mall like <laughs> that's not really a like a, anything they tried to do i'm not saying that the movie right. like accomplishes anything with that it's just like by default yeah like even the fucking the guy who built the mall, his like deadbeat son, mm-hmm. is just like skateboarding on a skateboard that he found, right. and then the yeah. killer like lassos him around the neck and shoves yeah. the other end of the rope into the uh, escalator so that he dies being strangulated by the escalator, like mm-hmm. shit like that. I was like, okay, this I like. The movie is a mess on the whole, and it's not a good movie, but there were individual things that I 
I dug just because it was a mall <laughs> in the eighties. Yeah. Right. An eighties horror eighties horror mall is gonna check off some boxes for you. I get it. Yeah. The thing is like in the in like the first half of the movie, it was just kind of that casual, like pe- spending a lot of time in the mall, hanging out in the mall that I kind of enjoyed. At the very end, while it's not great, it has a little more of like an action thriller vibe because there's like a bomb that's going to go off and everyone's running around and there's gunfire and Ken Foray is a mall security guard and everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. But for the majority of the movie's runtime, it just feels like it's kind of aimless. Like you go into the movie kind of knowing what it is it's going to be a mm-hmm. slasher it's also kind of a phantom of the opera thing so there's people being killed but like we were saying there's no rhyme or reason in the beginning to who he's killing and it's like there's it just didn't feel like there was a lot of plot thrust and yeah like or even evie if he even had a master plan or knew who he was like going after or yeah exactly like you find out that stuff a little bit at the end but then it's like the the fucking security guard with the earring who was like the assassin he comes out of nowhere in the middle of the movie and mm-hmm. it it just it feels kind of discombobulated it's just not super yeah. well written it's like a, a like an easy win of a premise that's not capitalized upon very well right i mean it's not even like i mean i think it's 90 minutes it's not even like it's too long or overwrought or anything like that i think it really is just poorly written to where it's not like nothing like particularly like that exciting is written into it you know or like that well executed yeah a couple more passes at the script to like tighten it up and give it a little more you know oomph and this could have been much better i mean it's always going to be a fucking phantom of the opera knockoff slasher movie in a mall but Mm -hmm. it could have been a lot more fun than it is i think that's probably like my biggest thing. It's either it's not even that necessarily would be like a straight up comedy horror or something, but it feels like it it shouldn't it should have been more fun. Mm-hmm. However, For sure. however, your definition of fun is like translated into film, like more Polly Shore. It, it is lacking. I mean, even then, yeah, Polly Shore <laughs> don't get he don't get much to work with either. Means, yeah. But, yeah, for us, you know, for a movie that's got you know the the killers putting snakes in the sewers to bite people and stuff like yeah it's they they're okay like like i said the um the uh escalator kill that's like okay we're gonna use the mall to kill someone mm-hmm. similar in a manner of speaking the kill in the uh the air vents in the beginning where he like shoves the guy's head into like that ventilation fan yep it's part of the building okay but then and, and even like okay he steals the uh the crossbow from the sporting goods store and uses it on somebody okay fair enough but then yeah the snake like i was even thinking during the movie like they should have had a scene where he goes and he steals the snake from the pet store but then i was like totally. would they have like a poisonous viper in a pet store probably not <laughs> probably not but at least it would have made more sense to show him getting it from somewhere yeah. where does he get the snake he puts it in the pipes and it magically just appears in the toilet in, when that guy happens to be toilet. using it yeah and then the snake does come back later on in the movie so yeah it would have made more sense if they explained the snake a little better so there's some weird shit like that <laughs> that's just very 80s like you know you know it's somebody in, involved with making this movie is like we gotta have a snake bite this guy in the dick yeah and, they don't worry about anything about sense or making it make sense. Or mm-hmm. it was pretty good when um, 
Morgan Fairchild gets thrown out of the... Uh, That's actually probably one of my favorite parts. <laughs> she gets thrown out of the window, like picked up, held above his head, and speared yeah. through a window yeah. like three stories up and lands on the big spire in the center of yeah. the model of the mall that's on display. Yeah, that like was a, good. A stunt person like definitely went on a good ride going through that window. Yeah. All practical, you know. I wish that uh, like at the end, um, when they're escaping the mall, uh, the whole like gang of kids, including Pauly Shore, jump on a <laughs> gigantic motorcycle with a sidecar that's oh, like yeah. on display in the middle of the mall. And they like ride around on it, but it looks like they're moving five miles an hour because the production was probably like, that's an expensive bike. If you fuck right. this thing up, mm-hmm. it's going to cost us. So it looks like they're driving four miles per hour whenever they're on it. I used that scene to try to convince Megan that if we we're to get a motorcycle, could we get one with a sidecar? But sadly, no. <laughs> oh. I know. She wasn't having it, but... <laughs> I don't know if I'd fit in a sidecar, but I'll ride with you. That one, I think, because that thing was humongous. That, 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 one, was, I mean, that was There were four of them riding there, that yeah, thing. Yeah, that was the, I don't even know what model or what that was, but it was humongous. Yeah, it was fucking enormous. So, baby, that's what we'll take to uh, Phantom of the Paradise Con or whatever. <laughs> Phantom Palooza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eric's Revenge. But, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a pretty average... 80s slasher, you know, Very. not the biggest fan of the genre in general. So at least the Phantom of the Opera kind of elements and the mall setting, I think, made it a little, a little better for me. It wasn't just another like a bunch of unlikable teenagers in the woods kind of movie. You know? True, true. Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, it it didn't hit all, doesn't check all the boxes, but as far as like a mashup of Phantom of the Opera and the mall, I mean, it does accomplish that, so... Yeah. Tragically little um, behind the scenes info out there on this one that I could find, but <laughs> I was a little surprised. There's a little bit of nudity in the movie, including a uh, an early sex scene with uh, the main actress, um, Carrie Whitman. Mm-hmm. Come to find out the year before this movie came out, she was uh, Miss February, Playboy's Playmate of the Month, 1988. Oh. Yeah, that's all I got on that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite the flick. Eric's revenge. <laughs> Eric's revenge. Jesus. I just think that every movie now should have that subtitle, like Avengers <laughs> Endgame. Eric's revenge. <laughs> oh, God. It's like just. Uh, what does this movie want to be? Hitting me with that kind of <laughs> subtitle, Mills. I just don't get it. The English Patient. Eric's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Eric? Uh, like Even just the fact that it's the name Eric. Like, you, just, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> it's not, not a cool, like, intimidating name at all. It's just like Eric. It's the kid next door, Eric. Yeah. What a, what a decision. <laughs> I wish I had an explanation for that. I know. <sighs> uh, let's ta- shall we let's talk, talk some posters? These, let's talk these posties. So, the Phantom of the Opera poster <laughs> definitely, I think, oversells what the movie is. <laughs> yeah, I wish this was in the movie. Because it's awesome. Like, there is a scene where someone is on top of a chandelier and then it falls, but 
A, it's not the phantom on the chandelier, and B, mm. it's not on. It's not flaming at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's not a fireball. Yeah, the entire poster would lead you to believe that at the end of the movie, the theater ca- uh, catches on fire, well, which well, doesn't happen. I waited to bring this up. I was waiting for this shit. I was like, man, I can't <laughs> wait for him to swing in on that flaming chandelier. No, he gets taken out by a perfectly dry and unburning chandelier. Yeah. Uh, interesting decision on the, uh, mm-hmm. the part of the painter for this poster. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a nice poster. Uh, I like it quite a bit. I like the, the angle, especially the titles at just big. I don't like the inset of that other poster. Yeah. I feel like you don't need that shit. You don't, but otherwise I'm, I'm a fan. I think it's a good piece of art. There's yeah. a lot going on. I mean, it's not in the movie whatsoever, but right. It's a good one. I dig it. And it's nice and clear, like just a, a white title, the white, um, you know, border. Like it's just all very striking. Mm-hmm. Interesting decision to have like the cast and all at the bottom. Like that could have just been the entire bottom of the poster was white, but instead they decided to make it look like there's this white ribbon going across the bottom because there's a tiny bit of the color of the rest of the poster underneath. Right. Of it. Right. I can't figure that out. Yeah, that's a good point. Not that it's a big deal. I just question why yeah. they did yeah, that's that. That's a good point too. But yeah, it's like bright and colorful. Uh it's like an interesting design, the way it's all like kind of centralized in the middle with the the title kind of coming out at an angle the way yeah, it does cool. on one side of the poster. It's striking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the it. um that, that inset picture down at the bottom. I think it offsets like the the title in the opposite corner, but it's mm-hmm. like even just the fact that it's like a monochromatic blue doesn't really match yeah, anything feels, else. Feels like an afterthought. Yeah. Like if they wanted to put like a close up of the mask there or something that, that sure. could have been better. Yeah, immediately makes more sense. The greatest thrill classic of all time. That sentence just doesn't feel like it even makes sense. No, no, it's <laughs> no such thing. No one's no one's called anything else before, during, or after besides this a thrill classic. Yeah, kind of weird, but still good. It's like uh, I have a um, a Mondo poster illustrated by Francesco Francavilla on my wall for uh, this island Earth, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> it's got the classic. Uh, tagline for the movie on there which always just reads kind of weird to me it says uh the supreme excitement of our time <laughs> it's just yes. like they just were stringing words together back then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. totally but otherwise good time i gotta hear about these phantom of the paradise posters yeah so the phantom of the paradise the the one with the black background is the one that we're actually discussing because this is the original theatrical release poster and I mean, there's a lot of black, but uh, I gotta say, the imagery and the colors and the way it kind of looks like neon signs and everything, it it suits the movie pretty well. Yeah, it's just weird that it's on this like black void that it, it almost just, feels like it deadens the whole thing a little bit. Oh, there's just so much negative space. Yeah, that they could like they could have just like bumped out more put more in the background more lightning bolts or something. it's like a it's like a horizontal design in the middle of a vertical poster mm-hmm. no that's a good point which you know that can work for something like i think examples in the past would be like the shadow where it was just like the kind of face in the middle of the poster yeah yeah or whatever but this you I know mean, what this 
this needs the lightning bolt in the back. If you if they turned that, you know, thirty degrees so it was more vertical, mm-hmm. then you could just you could make everything bigger and fill out that space more. Yeah, but I mean, I dig uh, I dig the Phantom on there. I dig Paul Williams's creepy smiling mm-hmm. face up at the top. Is that supposed to be the girl on the left, or is that beef? I think that's beef. It's yeah, it's got to be beef. Oh, yeah, there's a guitar going up to uh, Swan's head, too. I just noticed that. <laughs> yeah, same. It's almost like a silhouette. Yeah, all the chords everywhere. I mean, it, it works. Yeah, all that shit just... in the middle I like. Even he sold his soul for rock and roll. I mean, <laughs> yeah. all that's this, good. This, this should be an entire poster of all this crazy shit. Yeah. Not so much black. I mean, this it's quite literally... 60% black. I mean, the, entire the, thing. the black, it definitely pops out all those neon colors. So I still think the black, the background should be black. For sure. But there just needs to be more of this imagery. Yeah, just need, exactly. Just change it around enough so it could fill more of the dead space. But yeah, it should be on black. Absolutely. But. Yeah. Uh, the other Phantom of the Paradise poster, I just wanted to toss it in there just because Richard Corbin's my favorite comic artist. And it's mm-hmm. one of the two posters that he ever did. And so I've always kind of liked it. It's just, it's neat seeing him draw, like, with his unique art style, his interpretation of the Phantom. I mean, this is an awesome shot of the Phantom, because, yeah, I do like this. He's in, is this his layer? Yeah, this is him where he made the music. Yeah. Like, his keyboard. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the standard hippie, busty Corbin girl in the background, which doesn't really look anything like the actress in the movie. (laughs) Right. But just yeah, the like the airbrush glints off of his mask and everything. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I like it. I just wanted yeah. to talk about it because I was like, how many opportunities no. do I have to bring him up on the show? All right. No, it's cool. I like them both yeah. for different reasons. But yeah, I dig it. And then, uh, ooh, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. This is a hideous poster. This, this is this the ugliest poster we've ever seen. I mean, it's up there. This thing is just it's ugly. it's up there. It's ugly. Yeah. It is bland. It is drab. It's all pinkish purple. <laughs> and not like in a good colors. way. Yeah, it's just like pale and it's like the least interesting shot of a mall you could possibly use. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to use his face on the, the poster, wouldn't it have been more interesting to have the mask on him? I mean, totally. Because it's like you can't even, you could barely make out. You could tell he's like deformed, but yeah. But that's also something that you should be like hanging on to for reveal in the totally. film as well. Totally. It's just like, and it and it's so poorly like cropped and picked. That's like they put that pillar is on the left side of the poster, so it's almost like a giant head poking out. Like yeah, it's like, you know, yeah. It's, it's like so many poor. De- it's every poor decision was made here. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's just... like of all the th- all the shots of a mall, you're gonna superimpose his face over like two escalators. Yeah, and everything's just like dark and reddish, pink and yeah, purple and mu- muddy garbage. Like it looks to me more like it's a like a shitty VHS box cover. But I mean, it's got all Definitely. the credits and stuff at the bottom. Oh, this yeah. is what I found when I searched, and it's got the creases like it's a movie poster. Yeah, yeah. This is up. A- just a poster. One of the worst hands down we've ever had. Yep. When you, when I, when you sent me these and I look, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. 
Yeah, Phantom of the Paradise has two good posters. This one doesn't have one. No. Not, <laughs> not even close. Like, nothing is saving this poster either. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, nothing redeeming about it. Millsy, baby, break it down for the people. Well, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge gets uh, one snake bite to the scrotum. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Fitting. And it hardly deserves that. Agreed. Uh, I'm going to forego the Corbin poster because that's not the original theatrical release poster. And I do like these other two. Uh, I feel like Phantom of the Opera, the Hammer film, that for me gets uh, four rats in a bag that the rat catcher tries to show (laughs) to everybody he sees. Rat catching, yep. Yeah, a couple little weird problems with it, like that inset image that we talked about. But otherwise, like the the vast majority of the poster is really good. It's great painting and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, similarly, I'm also going to give four to Phantom of the Paradise. In this case, it's going to be um, four limbs severed off of audience members during that one, like Frankenstein influenced oh. stage performance. Like, what was yep. the deal with that? I wouldn't even ask. I wouldn't <laughs> expect an answer. So, yeah, because this one is another one where it's like really good design and everything. It's just it needs to be more of the poster. Mm-hmm. Like I like everything that's there. There just needs to be more of it. Yeah, I'm with you. So, well played, friendo. I do love the colors on this one. Just like the pinks and the neon I mean, greens and yellows, and they got that part down pat for yeah, sure. For sure. Just give the people more of what they want, Millsy. <laughs> yeah. More neon, more, more rock and roll. Paradise. Seriously. Especially for those in uh Winnipeg. Oh god. I just I I must know more. <laughs> Wikipedia didn't have a lot to offer, but that's all I can. Uh, well, I'll keep digging. <laughs> all right. Uh bye borrow burn time. Bye borrow burn time. Uh shall I go first or shall you? Mm, I'll go first. Okay. Um, I have no problem burning Phantom of the Mall. <laughs> um, it's to me borderline worthless. The other two are completely different ends of the spectrum, as I hopefully we've described. I'll say both are bits of movie magic, but um, I feel like my heart is just so filled with love for Hammer films that Phantom of the Opera is my buy. And oddly enough, as crazy as this goddamn movie is, I easily could make a Phantom of the Paradise my borrow. <laughs> Movie's batshit insane. I'm not even sure if there will come a time where I would rewatch it, but I'm glad it's out there in the world. Well, I have a copy on Blu-ray if you ever want to come by. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I'll save it for the festival. <laughs> yeah, we can have our own Phantom Palooza. I've got all these movies on Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Phantom of the Opera from Hammer is going to be my buy. That's a pretty easy decision. Um, mm-hmm. I just like the cut of Hammer's jib, and it was a pretty good movie anyway. Here, here. Uh, when it comes to the other two, I I feel like I didn't hate Phantom of the Mall as much as you. Like, it's definitely got a lot of problems, but it's not like I rude the day that I had <laughs> to watch it or anything. Mm-hmm. And I think it's got enough kind of enjoyable, campy, oh. you know, genre elements that it's, you know, it, it wasn't like a chore to sit through or anything. Uh, mm-hmm. Phantom of the Paradise, it's just, it's mind-bogglingly crazy. Um, 
in a manner of speaking, just because the movie is so bonkers, uh, it was a little bit of a chore to sit through for me. Mm, interesting. But I mean, I like how weird it is. It's just, it's like, I appreciate that the movie is so weird, but it like on all levels, it's not working for me all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I oddly feel like I am torn between which one of these to borrow and which one of these to burn because it's like Phantom of the Mall is pretty bland, but then Phantom of the Paradise is completely bonkers. And Right. So neither are your kind of jam, but not, not really, but also I don't like discuss, I'm not disgusted by either of them or anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of it in the realm of like, which one would I watch again? If like a, you know, gun to my head, pick one. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little surprised to say, I think I'd probably watch Phantom of the Mall again first. I, I do. I will be completely honest. I do find that wildly <laughs> surprising. Just enough of the like mall stuff and snakes biting guys on the dick and like the I mean, martial arts and the the action at the end and fucking Pauly Shore putting ears in people's frozen yogurt. I mean, Millsy, you love eighties movies, <laughs> so I think I gotta give the borrow just barely to wow. Phantom of the Mall and right. Revenge. Okay. Uh, I mean, you... if Phantom of the Paradise was called Phantom of the Paradise, Eric's Revenge, that might win out. But <laughs> I wish. <laughs> The fan poster I'm going to make, it will be. <laughs> and then that's going to make Phantom of the Paradise my burn, but like not by much. Like the mm-hmm. two of those movies are like weirdly evenly matched for me. Yeah. I mean, so. yeah, I don't even want to s- speak too highly of it because like <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise is a very burnable movie <laughs> itself. <laughs> it really a is. A very burnable movie. It is, but also. In the right, run to the right circumstances. It's like, yeah, it's like you gotta see it to believe it. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely do. But so. you kind of have to see Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, to believe it as well. So. Oh. oh, what a trifecta, Mills. <laughs> well done. There you go. All right. So, so what's next? Mills, how many episodes do we have to pick from? Uh, 239 potential themes at the ready. 239. Milzy. Yep. 117. 117 on the earlier side. All right. Oh. <laughs> uh, and now for something completely different. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had a theme quite like this before, and that's kind of by design. At some point, I was like, we need to mix up what's in our... Uh, oh. Our themes a little bit. Well, look at the one before and after this. That's so, what I'm yes. saying. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. This was definitely a pointed decision on my part to be like, let's throw some curveballs in here for it. I know what two, the first and third ones of these are. I don't know what the middle one is, but. um, I'm honestly most familiar with the middle one. <laughs> but yes. uh, the theme is uh, GFFs. Megan is 100% going to watch these. <laughs> One hundred percent. So this is the episode we we could uh, maybe get her a guest I, spot on. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> yeah, this is I've. Yeah, okay. I've seen I've seen I've seen the middle one a long time ago. <laughs> I can't wait. I am like I don't know if excited is the right word, but I'm very curious to watch these though. Oh, okay. I know this poster. 
I think I knew. Okay. All right. You know, I'm curious. I, you know. Sure. Sure. Okay. They are hey. what they are for a reason. So, you know, let's. We're fearless here at Triple Threat Theater. <laughs> this is one thing we do at Triple Threat Theater. It's keep you guessing, keep you entertained, I hope. Because, like I said, now for something different. Yeah. So for the next TTT, we're talking GFF. Mm hmm. And on that note, Mills, I'm Joe Daxberg. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.